Hi there, welcome to another MLEX podcast. We're so glad you could make it. I'm James Paniki from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team, and this week, the human face of US antitrust prosecutions. One of our DC-based reporters, Max Fillion, has obtained court reports that offer some insight into the unforgiving world of US extradition requests targeting foreign citizens charged with criminal cartel offences. There have been three such extraditions so far, all of them pointing to the very high price to be paid by those who engage in price fixing, and not just in the United States of America. The methodology of these extraditions also shatters any misconceptions that might still be out there that cartelists are treated with kid gloves when compared to others facing criminal charges. Most importantly, though, the extraditions reveal that it's not easy to escape the long arm of US justice. Max Fillion joins me now from Washington, D.C. Now, Max, uh, give me a quick overview of the cases of Unsu Kim and Maria Ullings. So uh, Kim was charged in 2015 on market allocation and bid rigging charges. Um, he had participated in uh, a conspiracy to rig bids for instrument panel clusters, which are better known as dashboards. Uh, that were later installed uh, in in cars that were sold in the United States. And Maria Ullings was uh, charged in 2010 with participating in a conspiracy to fix prices of air cargo services. Her conspiracy affected shipments of U.S. Air Force uh, parts, and um, she was in charge of pricing at Martin Air uh, when she participated in the conspiracy. We should also point out that they are both of a certain age. Kim is uh, 59, Ullings is 66. They were charged in the US, as you're pointing out, but they weren't at the US uh, at the time. So do we know at this stage whether they had in fact left the country to avoid charges? Is that something that we know? Uh, no, we don't. I, it's my understanding that uh, they both remained in their home countries, which Ulings is from uh, Holland and Kim is from Korea, and they both had remained in their countries uh, and were not, uh, in fact, arrested uh, until they had entered Italy and Germany. Well, let's talk about that because uh, U.S. authorities had obviously requested their extradition uh, they were in, uh, Kim was in Germany, Ullings was in Italy, in Sicily, which becomes relevant to your to your story. Uh, she was there on holiday. Tell me something about the conditions in which they were held while their extradition processes played out. Sure. So Ullings, as you had noted, was, was traveling to Palermo um, for a vacation with her husband uh, when she was arrested. And uh, she was initially held in jail for about a week until uh, her Italian co-counsel got involved. And then she was placed on house arrest uh, where uh, local police checked on, on her three to four times a day, her lawyer told me. And for the first month, maybe two months, uh, she was not allowed to, to leave the house uh, and then eventually she was allowed to leave the house um, uh, a few times a week to go for walks and exercise mm. and things like that. It might be cold comfort, but, uh, but she was far better off under house arrest than uh, in an Italian uh, jail, which are notorious for their uh, appalling living conditions. Kim was less uh, fortunate, however, wasn't he? Because he 
faced uh, tougher conditions in Germany. He was, yes. So uh, Kim was arrested upon arriving, and he was held in a prison nearby, JVA Frankfurt, for a little over five months. And uh, at his sentencing hearing, his lawyer, Michael Yee, told the judge uh, that he was housed in a 120-square-foot cell, and he was held in solitary confinement there uh, in his cell for 21 to 22 hours a day. Uh, He faced other harsh conditions like uh, being given just one meal a day, his lawyer said. He was rarely allowed access to a telephone. Now, Max, these are are clearly very harsh conditions that he faced. His lawyer has, in fact, uh, suggested that they were in violation of UN rules on, on detention. Is that right? Uh, Yes, his lawyer pointed this out at his sentencing hearing. Um, He said that these rules had violated a uh, 2015 UN agreement called, uh, it's called the Nelson Mandela Rules, um, otherwise known as the Standard Minimum Rules for the Treatment of Prisoners. According to these rules, uh, a prisoner cannot be held in prolonged solitary confinement. Uh, Solitary confinement is being defined as... uh, being held uh, for 22 hours a day in a cell in excess, uh, the prolonged part being in excess of 15 days. Uh, as alleged, his lawyer said that uh, he was held for 21 hours a day on the weekdays and 22 hours a day uh, on the weekends. So they fall just short, but I, I think you would have to be um, arguing semantics at that point. Sure. And this is the second and third time that senior executives have been extradited and sent back to the US on antitrust charges. The first person uh, to suffer that fate was an Italian, uh, uh, Romano Pisciotti, and we'll discuss his case a little later on. But looking now at the at the bigger picture, I suppose, Max, what do their stories mean for other foreign executives or foreign managers who are currently avoiding U.S. antitrust charges by remaining overseas? I think that they paint a grim, uh, they paint a grim fate. Uh, they show what happens. Uh, you could be on vacation. Um, you could be traveling for work. And uh, the arm of the U.S. law can sweep you up. Now, uh, these um, executives, they were staying in their countries, which um, it worked out for them up, up until this point. Uh, as as Uling's lawyer pointed out to me, uh, the the crime that she uh, committed is not a crime in Holland, and so it just shows what happens once you get caught up uh, in the long arm of the U.S. law. And um, if I were the DOJ, the DOJ would say this shows the benefits of cooperation. Maybe you might not have to go through such a such a horrible experience as these two had. Um, you would come to the U.S. Uh, on your terms and serve your prison sentence um, that way. Uh, And I suppose the reason why we're talking about this is that um, antitrust um, offences are traditionally seen as white-collar crime. They're perhaps um, incorrectly in our mind not seen as serious enough to warrant this kind of harsh punishment. But I think the message that these stories are sending 
is obviously that uh, that they are. And I'm assuming that there are other people uh, in this situation. There might be other people out there who could be facing similar uh, charges and uh, might be facing similar extradition requests. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it's difficult to tell uh, how many people are facing that due to the concealed nature of U.S. law enforcement investigations. If you were to ask the DOJ, you know, how many other people are out there that are, are fugitives um, of U.S. antitrust law, they would they would not tell you. Uh, I can assure you that. And uh, yeah, I, I you know, People might estimate that there are dozens and dozens. Uh, surely there are other people that participated in the cartels that they uh, that Kim and Ulings uh, had participated in. Um, it's difficult to tell because the indictments might be sealed, but surely they would read their stories with interest. Mm. You mentioned in passing before the notion of dual criminality. In other words, that in Holland, uh, Ulings's uh, country. Uh, the offence didn't exist while it did in the United States. Why is that an important concept uh, in this discussion? Um, in order to be extradited, uh, there has to be dual criminality, and that is typically the uh, the primary bar that has to be crossed. Um, and uh, Uling's lawyer actually thought there was no dual criminality in Italy as well, and that's why they initially tried to, uh, to fight it. Uh, now the Italian court uh, disagreed. They said that uh, Uling's crime was punishable by jail time under Italian uh, cons- conspiracy law, and so she was extradited. And there was even a suggestion on the part of her lawyer that this was more of a result of a sense of indebtedness on the part of the uh, Sicilian authorities uh, for the cooperation of the US in the fight against the mafia. Um, so that they might have stretched the rules. That's at least a suggestion on the part of the lawyer, right? Correct. Yeah, that's that is uh, that's what she told me in her interview. Uh, did, did the court documents and and the DOJ uh, did not touch on that? Okay, where are they now? I mean, Kim, despite finishing his sentence on June the fourteenth, is in fact still in custody. Why is that? That's correct. So uh, Kim is still in custody uh, in the in in a facility in Louisiana. Um, he was turned over to uh, Immigrations and Custom Enforcement, which is uh, an immigration agency in the U.S. Um, following his sentence, and he was just recently told uh, that because he committed a crime of moral turpitude. Um, he is not allowed to voluntarily remove himself from the U.S., uh, so he has to wait for ICE to um, organize his removal. Um, they have to basically escort him to the airport. Um, in some cases, they even put agents on the plane with him, uh, but I have learned that that they are not doing that, but they will be uh, escorting him. Uh, they are set to escort him for a flight on August 10th, which will be about two months after he completes or completed his sentence on June 14th. And as for Ulings, she uh, is now out of jail. Where is she at the moment? So uh, Ulings left the U.S. following the completion of her sentence. She was not turned over to ICE custody. Uh, She was granted compassionate release um, by the judge overseeing her case due to coronavirus concerns. Uh, This is different than um, Kim's situation in that uh, he had just finished his prison sentence, and so he was turned over to ICE custody following that. But she was granted compassionate release, uh, and in that order, the judge uh, asked ICE to allow 
her to voluntarily remove herself or uh, to effectuate his removal order that he entered at the time of her sentencing or show cause uh, for why they were not doing those two things. Um, and so she voluntarily removed herself and, and uh, left the U.S. Um, shortly after completing her sentence. Max, it's a, it's a great story, one that will no doubt send a shiver up the collective uh, spine of those who have yet to reckon with U.S. criminal cartel legislation. Thank you for uh, your reporting, and let's talk again soon. Thanks, James. Max Fillion is an MLEX antitrust correspondent based in Washington, D.C., and listening in to that conversation from Brussels is Lewis Crofts, MLEX's editor-in-chief. Now, Lewis, we mentioned in passing just now the first antitrust extradition case involving an Italian citizen, Romano Pisciotti. You've been covering uh, his plight since, well, since 2014, I suppose. Uh, Can you walk us through the main points of that case? Yeah, Romano Pisciotti will always occupy a special space in the uh, antitrust handbook as the first man who got extradited. It's uh, infamy for him. Um, And he was released from prison as the first man to ever be um, extradited. And I actually, I went down to Italy, to northern Italy to meet him. And he was um, a pretty avuncular chap, um, but was pretty downbeat after a couple of years in, in prison, as you would imagine. His fate was sealed when he took part, when he was working at a company called Parker ITR, and he took part in a cartel of marine hose. These are the big hoses that go from the port onto boats to uh, fill them up with oil. And he was part of that cartel. And um, his problem was he, he worked in Nigeria and lived in, lived in Italy. Always. His mum lived in Italy and he would go back and forth always on Air France which took him through took him through Paris, usually to change planes. And one day the Air France plane got cancelled and he had to take a Lufthansa plane, which took him via Germany. And when he turned up in Frankfurt Airport to change planes early one morning, he got nicked. Uh, Frankfurt for him was the, was the place where it all started. And was he aware that there were these uh, charges, uh, that he was facing these charges in the US, or was that the first he, he knew about it? Um, he knew about it. Um, you know, his name was on a wanted list. Uh, he didn't know he was on what was, what was called the red. He had a, a red notice out against him, which is the sort of Interpol thing, which um, has your name, um, your mugshot on a on a piece of paper and alerts all of the border control to to nab you if they see you going through going through customs or, or passport control. But he knew they were they were onto him. He had been um, detained once before in Switzerland, um, and the police had, um, had him for an hour or two, and then released him. Uh, and he, it was all quite mysterious, but he he um, he knew that the um, FBI um, had reached out to him and his lawyers, and he'd, he'd spoken to them about cooperating. But what he didn't know was that, uh, and this was all came out in the litigation. And it was why it was a land why it was a landmark case. Is that as Max said earlier, the key here is dual criminality. So it has to be a crime in both places, and the punishment has to be comparable in both places. You know, uh, a rather crass example is you get caught shoplifting in London. Um, they are not going to extradite you to um, a rogue state somewhere where shoplifters get their hands cut off. Uh, that's just not going to happen. So you have to have, it has to be a crime in both places um, with um, um, comparable punishments. And in Germany, there is the crime of bid rigging, which is obviously ridding pub, rigging public bids, which is criminal. General antitrust conduct 
doesn't tend to be criminal in Germany, but it is criminal for that, that core abuse. And that is what um, was judged to be comparable to the US situation, which meant that why the Germans could extradite him. You heard what Max had to say about the case of the Korean man, Mr. Kim. Were there similarities in terms of the way in which he was treated? Was his imprisonment in Germany as harsh as that of uh, Mr. Kim? So um, he sat in a Frankfurt jail for 10 months as well while he was going through the court case of trying to argue that the German uh, government shouldn't extradite him to America, that there was no dual criminality. And he actually says that he was treated pretty well in Germany. I mean, he says he had privacy, he had a light he could switch on and off, he had a toilet, he had had a, a, a bed... Uh, and a desk. Uh, when he compares that to what happened when he turned up in America, where he was um, using a, a bucket in the corner of the room and and had a sort of bed built into the wall with a blanket, uh, he says America was appalling for him. He was wearing, uh, you know, uh, clamps, chains around his legs. Even when he got released, when he was when he was flown back, even then he had uh, chains around him. He was accompanied by by um, guards and um, sat at the back of an aeroplane with a blanket over his lap to cover cover his handcuffs. This is a, a bit of a parenthesis in a way, but this case uh, went all the way to the EU Court of Justice. Just in a few words, remind us what that case was all about. Yeah, so he, you know, Europe has a, has a tension here. One, the European Union is built on these various freedoms, one of which is the freedom to move around um, and the freedom for citizens to be treated equally all across the block. And what he was saying was, what it boiled down to was, the German government will not extradite German citizens to the US. But if there's a foreign citizen, criminal on its, on its soil, it will extradite him or her. And what he said was, this was Germany basically discriminating um, between citizens. Him as an Italian could get extradited from Germany, but a German citizen, indeed there was a German in the same cartel as Bichotti, didn't get extradited. And he said this is unfair treatment between citizens who should be treated equally throughout the European Union. He went to the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. He also went to the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. That's the EU court system. And he came away empty-handed in all cases, essentially, European governments. When it comes down to such tough things as handling criminals and doing extradition, they they can go their own way. Look, just, just very briefly, why was it that Germany wouldn't extradite uh, a German uh, national? I mean, the, the issue of the duality of the crime uh, that Max mentioned earlier on, that's certainly there. If they have a comparable uh, offence in Germany, why would they be loath to allow German citizens to be deported? Uh, this boils down to um, bilateral extradition agreements. There's ones between many, many countries around the world, the UK and the US and Germany and the US, and the, the letter of the law of the German-US extradition agreement says no German citizens. There was a German citizen, as I said, who was in the same room as, as Pichotti in the same cartel. And he knew that as long as he was in Germany, he would never get extradited. If he stepped foot into another country, he would then be a, a foreigner in, say, the Netherlands or a foreigner in France or a foreigner in, 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 in Spain. And if there was dual criminality, he could, under, if, if, under the extradition agreements, he could be extradited. So I asked him, you know, what do you do about this? When, when, how do you go on holiday? And he just said, I don't travel. <laughs> and there you go. I suppose, why are we talking about this? I mean, more broadly, 
What do these extradition cases tell us about the way the US deals with foreign nationals who are facing antitrust charges? It's as Max said, it's the long arm of the law. There is, these are all welcome stories for the US and the US law enforcement agencies. Why? Because it shows there's nowhere to hide. Even though it's a US agency operating on US soil, um, it can get anyone from any nationality and it can reach into German prisons or, uh, or Dutch prisons and it can, it can haul people to the US to sit in jails and, and squat on buckets in the corner of the room. That is a very, very strong message to boardrooms, you know, the, 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 there's a big difference between Europe and America. Europe only finds companies. America can imprison executives. And you know what? If you're in a boardroom and you're all sitting around there wondering about what your corporate strategy is, um, a couple of hundred million on the company's balance sheet is going to be, um, it's not going to catch their eyes. But the chance that some of these men and women sitting around the boardroom might be sharing a toothbrush with the drug you know, kingpin in a in a in a four foot cell or whatever, that's going to get through to them. And as uh, Max mentioned earlier, there might be others facing uh, charges who are not in the US uh, at the moment. Uh, others obviously facing antitrust charges. What is the lesson for them to learn in all of this, other than uh, don't travel anywhere ever? Really, the US only ever needs one. It's, got, it's now got three, but it, gets, it's, it's, it only ever needed to extract one, and that is enough to scare the hell out of everyone. Um, it's done its job. There are other people who are, uh, they're going to struggle to get because they're in countries where they have different extradition laws, where these kinds of arrangements like Germany has apply. They've always struggled to, to get people from, from Asia, for example, and, you, and they have to wait for these Asian businessmen and businesswomen to pass through um, a airport or a country where they have these extradition arrangements and Germany has now been highlighted as a hotspot. So there are others out there, but all that the American law enforcement bodies need to do is get one. And one sends a message to every boardroom and they would hope people take note. Lewis, thank you very much for that. See you next time. A pleasure. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief and you'll be able to find our reporting on these extradition cases, including Max's story on the court files he obtained at the MLEX website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. And just click on the Insight Center tab for all of our latest reporting and links to our podcasts. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for your company. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at around the same time. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. See you soon. Bye for now.